Let's Make It Count is a campaign to help the next generation learn about their community and world through data. Today, we're very excited to introduce our guest, Joyce Hunter. Welcome to the show, Joyce. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. Joyce, you have an impressive background as a consultant, a business owner. You were an executive in the U.S. government. More recently, you serve as an executive director for a cybersecurity think tank. Tell us about your journey. Well, Jeff, my journey has never been a straight line. Starting in the dark ages with digital equipment corporations and many computers to Lotus, working with commercial clients on the desktop software side, and then moving over to software development, working with Ray Ozzie on the development of Lotus Notes. In fact, that was probably my most fun job because then I got put into project management and we had a dynamic project team that installed and configured notes for Ernst & Young LLP and Ernst & Young International in 46 countries in 12 months. So, wow. uh, yeah, <laughs> that was a lot. I was on a lot of airplanes. Uh, from there, I was the director of strategic alliances for Lawson Software, a healthcare ERP company. So I was on the early side of health IT back in the um, late 90s. Then I made a horizontal move into federal contracting, Raytheon, Aptis, and CSC. And then a vertical move to entrepreneur as the CEO of Vulcan Enterprises, which is a strategic management and consulting company. In 2013, I made another vertical move to the Deputy CIO for Policy and Planning at the United States Department of Agriculture. Upon completing that appointment, I went back to Vulcan Enterprises, dusted it off, and created a nonprofit data science camp for underserved, underrepresented youth, and also recently became the executive director of the Institute for Critical Infrastructure Information, the United States' only cybersecurity think tank. Wow, I cannot wait to dive into a lot of these topics. But it's so interesting to just hear about your journey through the tech sector, through government, as an entrepreneur, and ultimately chasing your passion of helping youth really understand STEAM and understand the possibility of careers in different areas of technology. And I know while working in government, you participated in the data cabinet, which was an effort through DJ Patil, the U.S. chief data scientist, and Natalie Harris, a senior policy advisor in the White House. And you worked with various teams on an effort around the theme of open data. For those who may not be familiar, what is open data and what were some of the efforts that you helped lead as, as part of the federal government? Well, the open data movement it was started in the federal government by and with an executive order in 2013, which is the Office of Management and Budget number M1313, with the idea that some government data should be freely available to anyone and everyone who wanted to use and republish as they wish without restrictions from copyright, patents, or other mechanisms of control. This was a great way of being able to engage the American public to use this data to create new business models and new business ideas. What were some of the, the open data sets that you helped release as part of the Department of Agriculture? When we first started with the open data movement over at Department of Agriculture, we had about 86 data sets, uh, you know, and, and they were a mishmash of everything. Cats, dogs, rabbits, you know, anything that you can <laughs> possibly imagine <laughs> was in our first submission. But then we figured out very quickly if we had a theme, Bobby Jones and I uh, worked on a, a theme for every single quarter. So one quarter it was drought. Another quarter, it was hunger, and they really responded. They could be very focused and search for those data sets that matched against what we were asking. And by the end of my term there, we ended up having almost a thousand data sets. 
That's incredible. I know I was blown away. We were doing some hackathons at the time when I was at Census, and I collaborated with with yourself and Bobby. And I was really surprised on how the participants could take data from Department of Agriculture and look at things like food deserts or investigate things like emergency preparedness and the impact on uh, our our food supply. So it really was an incredible effort, and it didn't just stop when you left Department of Agriculture because one of the amazing things that you did is you created during your time there a compelling summer camp that brought in folks from the DC community and encouraged them to participate in STEAM, incorporating some of these themes. Where did your inspiration for for this idea come from of creating a data science summer camp? Well, while I was attending the data cabinet meetings, I noticed that there were very few, if any, people that looked like me. So I thought in order to build capacity for these types of jobs, because everybody's talking about, I think the latest number was we are 1 million people short of data analysts and data scientists, and even Mm. in the agriculture sciences. And if we're expecting to maintain our leadership role in this area, we've got to get more people involved and encouraged. So I thought in order to build capacity for these types of jobs, we should go where no one has gone before. I'm a Trekkie. Uh, and engage underserved and underrepresented youth, tapping into their natural curiosity and answering the question, why? Why is there hunger and poverty? Why is there water and drought? So the program is designed to immerse the students in an intensive design thinking, project-based effort to use data to address important issues of public policy related to agriculture. Now, I started with agriculture and I've been doing the agriculture piece. So it's science, technology, engineering, agriculture and math for the last six years. But I am also in the process of creating two additional camps, which is science, technology, engineering, energy and math and science, technology, engineering, athletics and math. Both have massive amounts of data. Well, and I had the fortune of sitting through some of the presentations that students provided. I believe a former student presented on some of her work during your camp. And what what I love about the approach is it's very hands-on and you incorporate some elements and some interests that aren't typically found in STEM. Like, like you said, the agriculture component or the energy component or the athletics component. And I love that because I feel like that expands the potential audience of students who, like my daughter, for example, when she was in high school, she didn't necessarily resonate with some of the STEM programs were there. Not that they were bad, it just wasn't her cup of tea. And so people come at it from all different types of of angles and have these different passions. And so I love how you're bringing in a hands-on approach uh, and these different themes that can really attract students from all different types of backgrounds and based on their different passions, which which is great. I think it ties in nicely to what's happening this semester, which is the national challenge where we encourage high school students to use open data. And because the census is happening, we encourage them to specifically use a census data set and maybe marry that with a data set from Department of Agriculture or any data set really, but really encouraging them to explore their community and their world through data. So if you were to pick one of the data use cases from summer camp, uh, one that uses census and perhaps USDA data, what do you think would be a compelling example or scenario for students to explore and maybe even submit an entry to the national challenge? I think it would be all of them, right? (laughs) It was very hard to choose just one, but I I would say maybe hunger and poverty because digging through all the latest data sets, whether from U.S. Census Bureau or USDA, Economic Research Service, or the Food Research and Action Center, 
it can be daunting. You know, there's a lot of data out there. However, using this information, all of our anti-hunger advocates can use this information to show policymakers what's working and what's more, what needs to be done. As I mentioned before, in the wealthiest country on earth, there's no excuse that any child should struggle against hunger. One in five families with children could not afford adequate food at some points from 2015 to 2020. These are numbers that the 14 to 17 year olds this past summer came up with. Using both USDA and census data, we can find the location of food deserts, where these families are located, and show media representatives and policymakers that hunger and poverty exist in every community, in every state, and often, surprise, surprise, in their backyard. So putting a face and a shining light on the value of federal nutrition programs and other investments are critical for lifting up vulnerable populations. That's a great example. We will put links on the letsmakeitcount.org website where folks can explore the data sets that uh, you referenced there, Joyce. I wanted to transition and just ask a couple more questions on your career and advice that you have for young women that are exploring careers in technology. So what one piece of advice would you give young women who are considering a career in tech that you wish you had when you were just getting started? That you don't have to be technical. I have an undergraduate degree in sociology and MBA in marketing. Not technical at all. But if you're curious, you want to know why, then tech is for you. Because it's just a, a different type of science. And science is about discovery. And so that would be my advice. I, it does not matter that you aren't in computer science, that you don't have a double degree in math and physics. And to tell you the truth, I failed chemistry miserably. I started out being a nurse, right, in an undergraduate school. And organic and inorganic chemistry just told me that that was not the place for me. However, I did like quote unquote science. I had a sixth grade science teacher that just made science fascinating for me. And I thought I wanted to be a researcher. And actually, I really did think I was going to be a, a market researcher and started my internship at Hallmark Cards, looking at cards and what, what were the best of the past and the worst of the past to try to pick cards for the future for, for Hallmark because they design their cards two years before they appear on the shelf. You know, as long as you're curious and just a set of circumstances allowed me to get into a sales training program for a technology company. To tell you the truth, mostly uh, liberal arts majors do better in technology than pure scientists because we can make that crosswalk between the business value and the technology. You just have to figure out what the client wants, what the business value is, and, and how you want to apply it to improve life. I'm so glad you bring up that point because I feel like you're dispelling a common myth in folks that go into STEM careers in that you need to be this awesome technical whiz or being strong in, in the maths and the sciences can point you down a path. And, and yes, while that can be true, really, once you get out into industry, we're working in, in businesses and in communities and in, in the nonprofit sector where cross-disciplinary skills are so important. And so don't just limit yourself because maybe you didn't score the, the highest math score on your ACTs or SATs. So I really appreciate you dispelling that myth. Was there a moment in time or a failure or a barrier that you had to overcome that you think others may come up against as well? And how would you encourage folks who maybe struggle with their first chemistry class and, and then are thinking, okay, is this, am I going down the right path? Was there such a moment when you questioned, 
am I going in the right direction? And then how did you pull through that? Absolutely. I would say probably a little bit in graduate school where I was taking the advanced, you have to take statistics and you have to take, you know, regression and things like that. And so at that time, I was still, you know, the only one that looked like me <laughs> in most of the classes and was actually berated by my professor. And, um, because I knew people that already worked for Digital Equipment Corporation and they provided me with some data that I provided in my statistics class and the professor told me that that data couldn't be real. He had never worked in corporation, he had always been an academic. And so basically I just told him that here's the data, here's the information. And what I would encourage people to do is make sure you have your facts. That's all a part of research. And that's one of the things we drive home in my summer camp. Make sure you have your facts. Ask, how do you know? My grandson always gets into trouble. He's 14 now, but when he was small, he would make a statement or say something and I would ask him, how do you know? And I would force him to go look it up. Mm. He started asking his teachers, so how do you know? <laughs> that did not make his teachers feel so good. And you know, <laughs> but how do you know? You know, what, what makes you say the statement that you said without backing it up with facts? So as long as you have your facts, as long as you can show where you got the information from, then you can prove, you do a fact check and prove what you say is true. And that'll get you through it. If you know that you know that you know, and you have the data to back it up, you can get through it. Those are great lessons, not just in your career, but in, in life in general, uh, and bridging to our earlier topics of, of being curious, having the data, having the facts, and then going in and looking it up. Uh, those are those are great lessons that we can all take away. I did want to close with one timely topic, which is the election and the security around the election, which is a pretty hot topic. So in your current role as executive director for the Institute of Critical Infrastructure, your think tank is in charge of, of helping build awareness and helping inform policy around the cybersecurity efforts that would protect an election and protect the other infrastructure components of the nation, really. Uh, can you speak to some of the efforts that are underway currently? Absolutely. In partnership with ATARC, that's A-T-A-R-C, we are jointly developing a webinar on election resiliency, security, and disruption. And that is going to be led by uh, Washington Post editor, Joe Marks, who has written on this extensively. And we have people from the Elections Committee and Mike Hettinger, who used to be on the House in past administrations. And we have an, a young lady who just graduated from Villanova University. And so she's going to be presenting a historical perspective of not only in the United States and what happened in 1918, uh, but in, around the world, whenever they have had a pandemics and crisis and civil unrest, etc. So we are going to open the kimono and let people make up their own minds based on the information that we are going to provide. Uh, they can get to it through our website, which is icitech.org or ATARC's website. That wraps up our conversation today, Joyce. I can't thank you enough for joining us. Thanks for all the work that you do, both to protect our infrastructure through your cybersecurity efforts. Uh, uh, and for this incredible data science STEM camp, bringing STEAM to folks in the DC community and now expanding it beyond with other themes as well. So thank you so much, Joyce. Really appreciate it. You are welcome. I am so happy to be here. Thank you so much, Jeff.